So I don't know if uh, you've ever thought about this, but I'm going to force you to think about it now, so there's that. Um, Christmas can be kind of gross. It can make you feel a little bit gross. Like, here's, here's, I guess, what I mean by that. It's like, a really good example, and, and I'm thinking most people can relate to this, is sometimes it seems like, like the holiday season is a, like a nonstop sprint of how much can I eat over the course of a month, right? Like, I go into, like, every house I go to, and it's like, here, have a cookie. And I'm like, I don't want another cookie. I could, if I could not see another cookie for, like, the next two weeks, because I was just but like, nope, and I just, I continue to eat them. And then when I get done, like, we'll get home, and I'll be like, oh, honey, I feel gross. Have you ever used that expression when you've eaten way too much? Like, I'm just like, ugh. Like, just like, ew, I, do, like, I just feel, and, and, and like, we get that. There's that sense of, what's that called? It's overindulgence, overindulgence, okay? It's like, I've just, I've consumed too much, and we get that with eating too much, right? Um, people making us eat cookies, forcing us to, mom, <clears throat> sorry, <laughs> just, just saying. Um, but if you, if you think about it a little bit more, and, and one of the reasons we avoid thinking about it is because it, it does make us a little bit uncomfortable, I think. There's a lot about the Christmas season, our modern kind of Christmas, that carries the same kind of feeling of just like overindulgence. There's like a sense of almost rampant um, consumerism and materialism. It's like, I gotta have more, more, more. And we just think of like, it's a, it really becomes a month-long grab at like, what all, like, what all can I eat and buy and have and... And it's just kind of like, huh, like, I, I'm in a place where it's like, give me more stuff that I don't actually need, but because of, like, there's almost a social or cultural pressure to give gifts and get gifts, and it's like, I don't need anything. What do you want? I don't need anything. Like, well, we got to buy you a gift, so make a list, and so now I'm, like, forced to get things that I don't actually need, and I'm going to do the very same thing back to you, and so we're giving each other things that we don't actually need, and it's like, what, what is that all about? We, it's like, I need more decorations, and, like, almost like manufacturing the holiday spirit. Let me crank up the Hallmark movies, okay? Crank up the Christmas carols, like, like let's go. Um, and it's just kind of like, I don't know. When, whenever we, and maybe this is just me. Whenever I like juxtapose that against like, there are like real problems in the world, you know? <laughs> and then I'm like, here I am. Yes, I'll have another cookie, please. And it's like, there's just a sense of grossness, okay? And, 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 and so I guess, here's, here's the message today. Guys, don't be gross this Christmas, okay? Let's go home. That's it. We're, just, we're done. No, but, but here's the thing. Like, when, when I'm thinking about this, like, it, it comes to this question, okay, is that what Christmas is really all about, Charlie Brown? Can anybody tell me the true meaning of Christmas? And that's kind of what we're talking about in this series, right? We jumped into the series last week called, like, so, so this is it. Like, this is Christmas. And we're kind of evaluating some of the, the things that we associate with Christmas time or the modern version of, of Christmas and, and going, like, is, is this all there is? Is there something more? Are we missing it? Um, and last week, you know, we, talked, we started by talking about this idea of just time because, like, this, this is a, a time of year. It's like, go, 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 busy, busy, busy. It's hustle and bustle. It's like, wait, is it, it, should it be that way? And then we kind of also poked at this idea a little bit that's like, okay, it's not really just a Christmas problem, is it? It's kind of just a modern life problem. That Christmas really just becomes like kind of emblematic or, or a symbol of this is just how life is. Sometimes it, in the holidays it gets cranked up a little bit, but really it's like this is just a snapshot of what my life is like most of the time. And in that way, modern Christmas seems to many times, not always, but many times seems to display the symptoms of what is wrong with the world rather than offering a solution to it. 
And, and so like, if you're a Christian or a follower of Jesus, it's like, hey, we, like, our, our, like what we believe is that like 2,000 years ago, God showed up on the planet to do something for humanity that we could not do for ourselves, to save us from sin and death and evil. He came to be the solution to the problem that we had. And it's like, well, that's what, what Christmas is supposed to be, but sometimes the way that we actually do things and the way things play out, it's like, I don't know, Christmas just looks like a symptom of what's wrong rather than a solution to what's wrong. And so like Jesus came as that solution and the way of Jesus just flies in the face of modern life, which is such a good thing and such a beautiful thing because as we're living modern life, it's just, it's just draining sometimes. And Jesus wants to offer us a better way. And so one of the things, honestly, that, that Jesus is going to confront, or I think he confronts in modern Christmas, modern life, one of the things that we can fall into is just this idea of like, um, I don't know a nicer way to say it, but it's, it's, I mean, it's not supposed to be nice, I guess. There's just like a self-centeredness sometimes where it's like, it's kind of about, about me and what can I consume and me and my family and my group and my tribe. And it's like, let's, let's just like, let's just focus kind of inwards. And so that, that plays out, right, in the indulgence and eating a lot. It plays out in buying the things and making a list of all the things that we want. Or maybe I'm just a terrible person. And I've got personal work to do. That is true. I do have personal work to do. But I find myself buying more things for myself at Christmas time than any other time of the year. Anybody? Like, is that just a me thing? Because I'm like, I'm out shopping for other people. It's like the only time I really go out like shopping and I'm like, I think I do need that. Or people be like, hey, I need you to make a Christmas list. And then I realize as I'm making the Christmas thing, oh, look at all these things that I need. <laughs> it's like, I'll buy one here or there. And I'm like, ah, what is that? And there's the, that kind of, again, that consumerism, that materialism, that, and to where like the thing we talked about last week where our time, where it goes a lot of times, it's towards me or my family or my church or my friends or my group. They're kind of, there's almost this inward facing tribalism at, at Christmas time that can happen where we get a little bit um, self-centered. And, and I, I, none of that I don't think is intentional. No one goes around like, ha ha ha, I'm just gonna be full of myself this Christmas. There's almost, it kind of like hides under the Christmas spirit sometimes. And, and it hides under modern life sometimes where sometimes it's a result of what we talked about last week. We're so busy with our stuff that how can we not be focused on us? And this may be one of the biggest, you know, anti-Jesus parts about Christmas is we kind of get this inward focus. And I'm not saying the things about Christmas are bad, like the gift giving and the gift receiving and, and eating and, you know, going to friends and doing all, like, do, by all means, do all those things. I'm going to do those things. I've already started doing those things. I think the bigger thing is just what, what's the heart and the perspective and the posture behind it. And so we're going to look, as we did last week, at how the way of Jesus kind of stands in opposition or uh, just kind of like this, this countercultural picture of, of how things often operate in the world. What Jesus taught and what he modeled was revolutionary in his time, and, and honestly, it still is today. And so we're going to be in the Gospel of Mark today. Um, if you're like a hard copy physical Bible person, it's like one or two of you in here, go you. Uh, Mark 10 is where we're going to be. It's going to be up on the screen. You can find it in a mobile device, those things as well. So we've got four accounts of the life of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Um, Mark writes, as he's not somebody who was one of Jesus' original disciples, but he knew the guys that were. And scholars pretty much agree that, that Mark gets his information from Peter. And so Peter, who was one of Jesus' uh, first disciples, and not just any old disciple, but like one of his inner circle, like the core, kind of like the, the inner three, and who becomes a big leader in the early church, one of the most kind of important figures in early church history, Peter sits down and kind of gives his account of the life of Jesus to Mark. And one of the things that Mark records is this interaction between Jesus and his disciples, or Peter would have been there for this conversation, he would have been part of this dialogue. Uh, and that's what we're going to look at today. So we're going to pick up Mark chapter 10. We're going to jump to verse 33. Um, but what, here, here let, me, let me paint the scene for us. Jesus and his group are on their way to Jerusalem. Uh, at this point, it's towards the end of Jesus' ministry. And so 
he, like, he's got massive kind of uh, notability, popularity right now. Like, his, his, like his, his favorability is at an all-time high at this point because he's been teaching and performing miracles and feeding people, and everybody loves Jesus, right? And there's crowds of people that follow him. And so there would have been a group, kind of a posse of people, like, following Jesus as he's going to Jerusalem. And as that's happening, Jesus pulls aside kind of his core group, the 12, and has a conversation with them. And this is what we read. Uh, Jesus says, see, we're, we're going to, up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be handed over to the chief priests and to the scribes, and they will condemn him to death. They'll hand him over to the Gentiles, they'll, they'll mock him, they'll spit on him, they'll flog him, they'll kill him, and he will rise after three days. And so, so Jesus says, the Son of Man, that's going to become important a little bit later, he's going to refer to himself in that way, it's one of the, his most kind of common way of referring to himself. So he's like, hey, we're going to Jerusalem, and I, like, this, this bad stuff, it's going to happen to me. Uh, that the, the, the religious leaders are going to bring Jesus before these Gentile rulers. And so the Jewish religious authorities did not have the ability to just put someone to death. Um, and so they bring Jesus before the Roman authority. And, and the Romans did have the power to put people to death. And they kind of make up these charges and incite some crowds against him. And he's going to be spit on and mocked and beaten and crucified. And then three days later, he'll rise from the dead. And so Jesus is telling his guys, hey, this is what's about to happen. We're going to Jerusalem, and this is the purpose of me going there. Things are going to get really bad, and it's going to get difficult. So he kind of lays the groundwork. And this next part, um, and there's several moments in this conversation that that just makes me, like, love the disciples, okay? It just gives me hope for myself, because I'm like, see, they didn't have it all together. And it just, it's like, yay, because I don't have to have it all together. Because Jesus is, like, pouring his heart out. Guys, here's what's going to happen. I'm going to Jerusalem. And two of them, a couple of brothers by the name of James and John, they say this, hey, teacher, we want you to do whatever we ask, right? Like, he's like, sorry about all that getting beaten and dying stuff. That sounds awful. We don't even really understand what you're talking about. But Jesus, could you do us a favor, okay? Jesus, we need to focus on us for a minute. Like, we we, we have a favor of you. And again, this is why I love Jesus. One of the reasons why I love Jesus so much is he's not like, he doesn't just fly off the handle out and be like, no, don't you know like what I just said to you? How dare you? Like you selfish little so-and-sos. Like he's just like, okay, that's the question. If that's what you guys, if you guys have something, you want to go with this, this conversation, we can go there and I'll still get where I need to go with you during this conversation. And so he kind of humors them and he asks the question, well, what do you want me to do for you? Sure, you want me to do you a favor. What do you want me to do for you? And they reply and say, here's what we we really want. We want you to allow us to sit at your right and your left and your glory. Here's what we want, Jesus. We want to sit at your right hand and your left hand. See, they they, they had an idea of what was about to happen, but it was the wrong idea of what was about to happen. Like, like Jesus' popularity continues to grow and grow, and there's crowds of people, and they have all this momentum, and they're thinking, hey, we're going into Jerusalem, which is like the capital city. This is where, this is where like, you know, the, the, the line of kings, this is, where they, this is where they ruled from, this is where David's throne would be. Like, like we are going to Jerusalem. Jesus, you're going to go establish the kingdom, right? And whenever you establish your kingdom and you throw off the oppression of the Romans, we want to be your guys. We want to sit at your right and your left. In uh, ancient kind of royal courts, there would be, you know, you'd like this the scene you maybe have from a movie where they, like, there's a king sitting there and there's kind of people around him. That was like a legitimate thing. And the people who sat on the right and the left of the king had the highest power and authority in the entire, uh, the entire kingdom next to the king himself. So literally, it's like, hey, there's, no, there's only one person more powerful than those who are on the right and left of the king, and that is the king. And so here, James and John are saying, we think you're going to go establish your kingdom. 
When we're ready for that, we've been waiting for that. We think you're about to do what we've been wanting you to do the entire time that you showed up and invited us to follow you. And we just wanna make sure that we're kind of getting in early, that when you do that, we wanna be your guys. Jesus, we, we want you to know that you know, we're, we're with you. And we know, we know you're the king. It's all about you. But if we could be like little kings, that'd be good, okay? If we could just, if we could have some, you're gonna have subjects and power and authority. If we could have some people answering to us, if we could have some power and authority as well, that'd be great. That'd be great. And Jesus responds to their, their question or their request by saying, you don't know what you're asking. You think you're asking one thing, but you're not even sure. Are you able to drink the cup that I'm going to drink or be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? He's like, you guys are confused about what I'm even doing here. You think I'm going to go into Jerusalem to do one thing. I'm actually going to do something else. And you're not even like, aware of what it is that you are asking. You have an idea of what kingship looks like, what ruling looks like, what power looks like but you don't really understand what it is. And we're gonna see him kind of call that out soon. And he says this, you know, he kind of gives this kind of cryptic, like what's about to happen, this language. He says, are you able to drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism that I'm baptized with? And so this idea of, of the cup um, was a, a theme that had formed kind of in the Old Testament, what we would call the Old Testament. To so the guys that were there with Jesus, these are Jewish men who, uh, they, that would have been just their scripture. What we call the Old Testament is just the Hebrew scriptures. And so this would have been, they would have been familiar with it. This was like their, you know, their Bible. This was the story that they lived out of. And within their scriptures, there was this theme that kind of uh, developed, especially within the prophets of um, the cup of suffering or the cup of wrath that the prophets would kind of prophesy against the nations around Israel for all the evil that they were doing and the oppression and the wickedness. And at times, even the evil and the oppression and the wickedness of Israel herself for how, they, how Israel mistreated the, the foreigners and the poor and the orphans and the widows. And, and this picture begins to form of how, how the God would come and, and pour out this cup of suffering, this cup of wrath on those nations. It was a, it was a kind of poetic way of saying like, like, like God will judge evil, that he will not allow evil and wickedness and, and sin to just infect his good creation forever because he is good, he is loving, he won't let that continue on. And so it becomes this picture of this cup being poured out. And Jesus says here, like, here's what it looks like when the cup is poured out. It actually looks like me drinking the cup into myself. That, that for God to handle sin and evil, I'm actually going to take it into myself. And this idea of being baptized um, it carries the idea of being like plunged under, being submerged, being completely surrounded. And so Jesus is, is kind of cryptically saying, he's like, I'm gonna drink this cup of suffering, this cup of wrath. I'm gonna be completely submerged and, and, and surrounded by and immersed in suffering. Are you able to do that? That's what he's asking them. So you guys have a picture of what I'm about to do and the kingdom I'm about to establish. But the question is, are you going to be able to suffer for this kingdom like I am suffering for it? And of course, James and John, they're like, Sure, we think so. They have no, they're like, yeah, we got it. We're able to do that. What's he talking about? I don't know. Just go with it. Yeah, we got it, Jesus, because we want to sit at your right and your left. And Jesus responds to them and says, you know, actually, you're, you're somewhat right. You will drink the cup that I drink and be baptized with the baptism that I'm baptized with. Now, not in the sense that James and John were going to, you know, pay for the sin of the world, but in the sense that they would suffer for the kingdom. It's this, this bit of foreshadowing of what would happen to actually to all of the disciples, that everyone who's there having this conversation with Jesus, the 12, they would all be martyred for their faith with the exception of John, who's as a part of this conversation. While John wouldn't be martyred for his faith, he would live to be an old man, which meant he lived long enough to see all of his friends die for their faith. And he was tortured and imprisoned and eventually spent the last days of his life exiled on this little prison island. And so Jesus is like, actually, you, you are going to experience suffering for my kingdom. But 
for, for the question that you're asking to sit at my right and left, it's not mine to give. Instead, it's for those who um, it's been prepared for. And so there's kind of this deferral of Jesus to the Father's will. He's like, you're asking for something that's like, it's not mine to give. And you're concerned about the, the wrong thing. And now we don't really know what exactly happens next because we kind of cut to the next scene. Now the rest of the disciples are, are there. And so we don't know if they're there overhearing this like, like as it's happening or if like this conversation with Jesus and James and John end and they're walking along and the other disciples overhear James and John discussing this. Um, but whenever the other 10 disciples hear what James and John had asked Jesus, they're not exactly happy. Uh, Mark writes that they became indignant with James and John. The other 10 are like, how dare you guys ask Jesus that? Now, they're not, they're, not, they're not mad because they're, like, sticking up for Jesus. And they're like, that wasn't right, you guys. You shouldn't have said those mean things, okay? We, we get a hint by what Jesus talks about and just the, the life of the disciples throughout the Gospels that the other ten are mad at James and John because James and John beat them to the punch, right? They're like, hey, no, we wanted to be at his right and left. We want to be the greatest. We want to have power, right? And there's just this bickering and this fighting going back and forth over who gets to sit at his right and left. And Jesus being just loving and kind and patient and like just the amazing like teacher that he is, he calls them together and begins to unpack this, this truth and this idea that is central to who Jesus is, to what his kingdom is about and to what his followers are called to be. Verse 42 says that Jesus called them over, so his disciples, and he said to them, you know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles, they lord it over them. And those in high positions act as tyrants over them. And so he kind of gets them together and says, you guys, you, you know how the world works. Like this is your experience. You know how, how those who are in power, how they use their power. How, how those who have power lord it over those who don't. There's this, here's how the world works. The world works in such a way, you guys, where it's all about you. Do whatever you have to do. Who cares who gets hurt in the process? Who cares who you have to step on? Do what's best for you. And they, they knew the way it worked. And specifically, it says the rulers of the Gentiles. There's this, he's talking about like basically the Roman Empire. Right, the, the nation of Israel at this time is like they're, they're under Roman occupation and subjugation. And so when he says how the, the, the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over people, that wasn't like a theory. That was their daily reality. These guys that he's talking to, like their life would be, as, as they go about doing their daily life and business, they would see Roman soldiers all around them. That there would be, you know, high-ranking Roman officials, that there would be Roman governors who were over them and ruling the area. There would be these puppet kings that were set up. And he's like, he's like, you guys know how this works. This is your daily lived experience. Do the Romans do what's best for you or do they do what's best for them? They do what's best for them. And if they have to step on you to get there, that's what they're going to do. He's like, you, this is just how power and authority works in the world. And it wasn't just a Roman thing in the time of Jesus. This was actually something that was a part of, of Israel's story really throughout, where they were, uh, first they were slaves in Egypt, and then they're conquered by the Assyrians, and then the Babylonians, and then the Persians and the Medes come in, and then the Greeks come, and then the Romans come. He's like, he's like, this has been our story. We get a front row view to how people with power treat those without it. And it wasn't even just that. It was actually something that you look through world history. You look at just how people and kingdoms operate. It's like, this is, this is how it goes, Right? The kingdoms of the world operate in a certain way, where it's conquer and conquest, where it's a way of might makes right. You want to know what's right? Who has the power? It's not about like, object, like is this right? Is this good for people? Nope. It's like whoever is in power, we will decide what's right. And it just always so happens to match up with what's best for us. Those who have power use it for their own sake and their own benefit. And Jesus says, you know, this is how it works. The idea that it's like, this, it's not odd. 
This is normal. Like, this is just how the world operates. No one's going, I can't believe that. And I was like, yeah, we get it. Like, that, that's just that's how it is. That's the way things are. And, and not only is that the way things are, but there was a sense in which it's like, that's even kind of how it should be. It, it wasn't like, hey, we should stop it from being this way of uh, people who are in power, you know, misusing it against people who aren't in power. It's like, no, we just need to get to be the people that are in power. So Jesus, can we sit at your right and your left? Because we want the power. We want the authority. It was normal. And, and, and the, the reality is like, you know, it's like, hey, the more things change, the more they stay the same because in some similar ways, but in different ways as well, this is still mostly how the world operates. Where it's like, we look out for number one. Where those who are in power use it for their own benefit. That plays out in a lot of different ways. Maybe it plays out societally or culturally where there's kind of like the people in society or culture that are like, hey, we're, we, we have power, whether that's economic or like a, a specific position or just a voice and it says, we're going to do what we do and it's going to be what's best for us and if you don't like it, oh well. My goodness, this is like the exact definition of our current political climate. Whoever is in power, we will do what is best for us. And if you're not part of us, oh well. And then when the other side gets in power, we will do what's best for us. And if it's not best for you, oh well, we don't care. Whoever's in power makes the rules. This unfortunately plays out a lot of times in family dynamics. Brokenness there where there's like an authoritarian top down, you will do what I say and this is just how it is. And as long as you're under my roof and it's like, use power for our own benefits. Some of you have the experience of this playing out in a work dynamic where you've had a boss that's just like, they're higher up and it's just all about using me for what's best for them. Right, this is just how things work. This is how humans have functioned throughout all of human history. And Jesus is like, he would tell them and he would tell us, you know how that, that goes, right? That's just how life is. But that's not really the shocking part. As everyone would be nodding going like, yeah, we, we get that. The, the shocking part is what he says next. He says, yeah, but not so with you. Not so among you, on the contrary. Whoever wants to become great among you will be your servant. And whoever wants to be first among you will be a slave to all. And so it's like, like Jesus comes to this idea. It's like, hey, you, you understand, you know how the world works. You know how the kingdoms of this world work. Not so with you. There's a contrary thing that's happening here. There's a counter kingdom that is, is being set up. He's like, that's not how my kingdom works. That's not how my followers operate in the world, that my kingdom is one of servants. And so if you're gonna follow me, you're going to serve people. And not just the people that look like you and think like you and act like you or vote like you or believe like you, but he's like, no, no, it's pretty clear. You're going to serve all. That any person that you're ever eyeball to eyeball with, you ever shoulder to shoulder with, anybody that you ever meet, is this posture of, I'm here to serve you. I'm here to serve you. I'm here to do what's best for other people. So this is how my kingdom works. And it is this kind of counter culture. It's a counter kingdom. Jesus takes things that we see around us and he just flips it on his head and, and, and redefines it. And even just with this idea of, of like greatness here, Jesus doesn't say, don't, you shouldn't want to become great, or that greatness is bad, that you should not strive for anything, you shouldn't make great accomplishments, that you shouldn't influence, you shouldn't you know, add to the world. He doesn't say that. He says, I'm just telling you that greatness is something different than what you think it is. Go be great. But understand that to be great, you be a servant. And you serve the people around you, not so among you. And then he anchors it to, to the reason why. And what he says next becomes like the core thing. It's like, this is why, like, th th this is what the kingdom is. This is who Jesus is. This is for those of us that are his followers or called to follow him or considering following him. It's like, this is where it all comes back to. He anchors it to himself. And he says this, for even the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve 
and to give his life as a ransom for many. He, he says, listen, like, like the reason I'm saying not so with you is because it's not so with me. And if you're my disciple, you're my follower, that, that means like you are patterning your life after me. You take your cues from me, look, look to me. I, even me, I, I did not come to be served, but to serve. I came to serve so much that eventually I will actually lay down my life to do what is best for people. So go and do likewise. And this is the second time in this conversation that Jesus used this title for himself, son of man. Um, and it's very significant. In fact, it, it really brings the meaning to the entire passage when you understand like, what, what is this whole son of man thing? So there are tons of titles for Jesus. And a bunch of them are up on the, uh, the backdrop behind us where it's like all these titles, these roles, these things that he fulfilled, ways that he referred to himself. But the primary way that Jesus referred to himself over and over and over was always son of man, son of man, son of man. And, and that is a phrase that has a very, very specific meaning and it originates in this place in the Old Testament, in the Hebrew scriptures, that the, 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 the Jewish people have been waiting for, that they were hoping for, that they were longing for. And this son of man idea kind of originates in Daniel chapter seven, verses 13 and 14. And so here's what's going on. The, the nation is in exile in Babylon and, and Daniel is there and he's like actually working for the Babylonian government. He's kind of high up. He's a very smart guy. And Daniel starts having these dreams and these visions where God's showing him things. And he's like, what? is going on, I'm not even sure. Um, and in one vision, he has this picture, this idea of this son of man. So this is what happens, Daniel chapter seven. He says, I continued watching in the night vision. So he's like, I'm having these dreams, I'm, I'm watching what's going on. And suddenly, one like a son of man was coming with the clouds of heaven and he approached the ancient of days and was escorted before him. And so the ancient of days is it's, it's another way of saying like God, like the most high God, Yahweh, the God of gods, like the King of kings, the Lord of lords, like, like that God, God most high. And Daniel has this vision um, where he's like seeing God like in this heavenly kind of throne room. And, and so there's this picture of like it's God's space, it's the heavens, like humans don't exist in God's space, God exists there in God's space, but, but he's there, he's having this vision, he sees like the almighty and there's one there who looks like a son of man. And literally that phrase, son of man, it, it just means a human one. It's like son of Adam. Adam is the Hebrew word for humanity. It's where we get, you know, Adam and Eve, it's humanity. Um, and so he's like, there's one who's like a human one, the son of a human. There's a human looking one like there in God's presence in God's space. But there's something different about this son of man. Because here you notice it's just a son of man. But after this, this point in Daniel, when this is referred to, there becomes the idea of the son of man. That a son of man is just a human one, but as we're gonna see in the next verse, there's something specific, there's something unique, there's some, some attributes about this human person that nobody else has. That after this point in the scriptures, whenever the son of man is referenced, it's talking about this Daniel 7 guy. It, it would be, it's the difference in saying like, hey, like, uh, we are you know, son of, of man, like we are human, we are human ones, but we're not the son of man, there's only one of him. And so Daniel's having this vision. He's like, there's a human looking person there. What is going on? And this son of man person was given dominion and glory and a kingdom. And he was given people of every nation and language that would serve him. And his dominion or power is an everlasting dominion and his kingdom will never be destroyed. And so there's some things that are given to this son of man. And again, the picture that's unfolding, he's there before the ancient of days. And this son of man is given these things by who? By the ancient of days, the almighty God, like most high. And he gives this human looking person 
power and glory and a kingdom and authority. There's a human who's able to be in the presence of God, which is like unheard of. Like humans like can't be in the presence of God because we're broken, we're corrupt. But yet this one is able to be there and he's given power, authority, a kingdom, a people from every nation, every tribe. It's a worldwide thing and it is an everlasting kingdom. And 600-ish years later, after Daniel has this vision and, and this is written down, Jesus shows up going, hi, I'm the son of man. That's how he refers to himself. And when he says that, everyone in his original audience knew exactly what he was talking about, right? This was their scripture. This was their story. They're like, you're claiming to be this guy? Like, you're claiming to be like the final king with an everlasting kingdom and all power and all glory and everyone's going to worship you? This is the way that Jesus chooses to refer to himself, this is why, like, so often as a church, like, I'll, we'll bring up this idea of, like, like, Jesus is our Savior, yes, but he didn't just come to save you and then leave you alone. He didn't just come to, like, hey, I'm going to be your buddy. Like, he came, you know, he wants to, to save you and then to be your, your king, your Lord, your Messiah, because that's what he is. Right? So when he shows up and says, hey, the Son of Man, he's like, hey, all glory, all authority, all power, all, like, people are going to worship me, like, just so you know, that's who I am. But then in the context of what we're looking at in Mark's gospel where he's like, hey, this is who I am. I'm the son of man. I'm this Daniel 7 son of man. But just so you don't get confused at what kind of king I am and how I use my power and my authority and my kingdom, what it looks like, because that's what this conversation with his disciples was about. We wanna, we wanna be great. And he's like, well, you know how everybody else does power. You know how the world does power. Well, the son of man, the one with ultimate power and authority, that Daniel 7 kind of guy, he's actually here to serve, not be served. He's here to die for humanity. He's here to do what's best for humanity, not necessarily what was in his best interest. And this would have been such a shock to the disciples. This would have made like no sense whatsoever. In fact, it would be so shocking to them and make so little sense that they really didn't understand what he was talking about. Because it was just it was like, no, no, like the son of man can't be beaten and killed. Like that doesn't make any sense. And that's why it didn't really click for them until after he was crucified and rose from the dead. And then they're all like, oh, now we get it. Now we get it. You see, they, they knew, they knew this. They were familiar with this. Their hope was in this. And they, they actually thought that Jesus was this guy. They're like, yeah, this is, he's the one that we've been waiting for, except they wanted him to be their version of this guy. They're like, yeah, Jesus, kingdom, power, authority, glory, let's go. We're marching into Jerusalem and we got all this momentum and here we go. It's about to, it's about to happen. Kill the Romans, establish, you know, your kingdom. Go in, Jesus, swords blazing. Jesus, you go son of man on their sorry Roman butts. That's what we want you to do, right? Like, that's the picture. They're like, yes, it's finally happening. We're so excited. And Jesus is like, whoa, 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 fellas, fellas, hey, hey, pump the brakes. Love the enthusiasm, but it's misdirected. It's misdirected. Because remember, that's how the world works. Not so with you, and it's not so with you because it's not so with me. I'm not here to take the lives of my enemies. I'm here to give my life for my enemies. It was a completely different thing. And this is the posture, this is the heart, this is the core of who King Jesus is. He's a servant king. That's what he came to do, it's who he came to be. And this is the way that he also calls his followers to exist in the world. Like, hey, we take our cues from our king and he is the servant king. This is the way of the kingdom of God. It's the way of servanthood and self-sacrificing love. It's about going, I know how the world works, but not so with me. I know how everyone else around me is, is doing friendship, but not so with me. I know how everyone else around me does career and work, but not so with me. I know how everyone else around me is doing family, but not so with me. I know how everyone else around me is doing politics, but not so with me. Like, I'm a part of a different kingdom. And I take my cues from my king. 
that, that I'm gonna give of myself, I'll love, I'll serve, I'll sacrifice. And it may look like losing in the eyes of the world. It may not look like we're winning, but in God's economy, it is winning. And God will change the world through it. In fact, that's eventually what happened. But these guys are on their way to Jerusalem thinking, all right, Jesus, we're gonna win by the sword and we're gonna topple, we're gonna topple the Roman Empire by force. And Jesus is like, you don't understand. But eventually they would. They would see him crucified. And they would see him alive again. And then they would carry that message to the ends of the earth. They would just go about, hey, he was crucified, he was alive again, he was God in the flesh, he was the Messiah. And what began to happen is, is this message spread like wildfire all throughout the Roman Empire. And eventually hearts were changed and lives were changed. And because of that, the conquering, you know, human life is worthless version of the Roman Empire, that empire fell, not by the sword, but by self-sacrificial love of Jesus' followers because they were taking their cues from their king. And so we, we, we talk about this idea of Christmas and like, are we missing it? And so is, is this Christmas? If we wanna recapture like the heart of what Christmas is all about, we do that by embracing the servant king. By going, okay, this, this is what Jesus is about. This is what Christmas is about. This is what the world needs. They need a servant king and a, a group of people who are following their servant king. And so man, maybe you're someone that you're not, you know, a follower of Jesus, you're not a Christian, you've got questions, you're, you're online, you're here, you're trying to figure this thing out or whatever that looks like. And that would be my invitation to you to just embrace the servant king because for, for many people, and maybe this is your story, for so many people, they were given a different version of Jesus that was not this. And they were given a version of faith and of church that was where Jesus and the church looked just like the way the world looked, where it was about power and coercion and just like, hey, whatever's best for us. And if that's the picture of Jesus you were given, I'm so sorry. My prayer for you this Christmas would be to see Jesus as the servant king, who he really is, and to embrace him as that servant king. And yes, he's a king, so he has authority, and he's gonna be like, hey, I've got some things to say about your life. But at the same time, he's the king who laid down his life, and so I can go, okay, I can trust him. If you're already a Christian follower of Jesus, this is, this is how we make Christmas about Christ, is by embracing the servant king, by becoming servants ourselves. I get a a little bit of a laugh and a little bit of annoyance out of some of the, the hubbub about, we gotta put Christ back in Christmas. We gotta keep, Jesus is the reason for the season. And so we'll do things like, gotta put up a manger because we gotta keep Christ in Christmas. Gotta make sure we sing the right Christmas songs that are about the Savior being born because keeping Christ in Christmas. Don't you dare tell me happy holidays. It's Merry Christmas because we're keeping Christ at Christmas. Now, I'm not saying that there's anything in, inherently wrong with those things. But it is just this recognition that we can do all of those things and still miss this and still miss what Christmas is all about. We, we, can, we can do those things and say those things and be just as materialistic and consumeristic and as tribalistic as the world around us. Christmas season is an opportunity for us to go, you know what, I know how the world around me works, but not so with me. I'm not gonna do that. I'm not gonna live that. I'm not gonna be that way. It's a good opportunity to orient our heart towards being a servant. And there's a big difference in between serving and being a servant. Because serving is something we do once or we do occasionally or we do when there's an opportunity. But being a servant is a posture of my daily life to everyone that I interact with. It's about living a life that says, as Jesus laid down his life for me, I'm willing to lay down my life for others. Because we take our cues from Jesus, our servant king. Let's pray. God, we thank you. Um, that is who you are. That you are the, just the, the, the king the king of the universe, the one who is establishing this kingdom that is, it is everlasting and all power and authority and glory are yours. 
And yet we don't need to fear that. We don't need to resist that. Because history has shown us the kind of king that you are. The kind of king that would lay down his life for people that he loves. And so we praise you for that. I pray that we would be reminded of that. And no matter where this, this message lands with people, for those that are exploring faith or asking questions, I just pray that your goodness would be revealed to them. For those that are trying to faithfully follow you in our modern life, man, I pray through the power of your spirit that you would enable us to be servants to those around us. We pray this in Jesus' name.